It's Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a limited-run podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, the hyper-educated child and how the next generation will learn from our current crisis. We talk to author and educator Pavan Dingra. Then, spend your summer learning about free speech and free expression with our Summer Institute. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. Pavan Dingra is an author, professor, and curator. His latest book is Hypereducation, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough. He currently serves on the board of the South Asian American Digital Archive and teaches at Amherst College. Pavan Dingra joins me now. Hey, Pavan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a, it's it's a pleasure to have you. So so first, I want to talk about uh, your book. Um, you know, obviously, you document this sort of supercharged education arms race that begins in elementary school and stretches through most of a high achieving kids' mm-hmm. education. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, how do you think the current crises might uproot all of that? You know, I actually um, don't think it will uproot it. Frankly, I think it actually may have the opposite effect, which is to make it even more normal and pronounced. So what I mean by that is. A lot of the parents look for more education for their kids because they're worried they're not getting enough challenge from the schools. And these are families who are in good schools, well-ranked schools. These are families who move to these school districts because of the reputation of the schools, and still they find them somewhat inadequate. And now mm-hmm. we're at a moment where education is becoming, you know, it's obviously remote and there's a lot of concern over passing along instruction. So parents may feel they have even more reason to be concerned about the quality of their kids' education and how much they're getting from the schools. And so we'll seek after school or extracurricular academic opportunities. So for instance, the most common one would be looking for after school learning centers like math centers and reading centers that are some of the fastest growing businesses in the country even before COVID and are prone to probably to grow now because they're offering a lot of online options. And so I think what we're going to see is this trend that was already growing become even more popular uh, now and probably even to the future. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, uh, for for parents who are struggling with all of this right now, I mean, maybe that doesn't sound like such a bad thing, right? I mean, you've got all these businesses, they're competing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they're offering great online education. I mean, you know, a critic might say, that's great. Like, there should be that kind of uh, competition. And therefore, it's going to be good for kids coming out of this to have an environment where you have places like reading or math tutoring centers that are taking off. How do you respond to that? I actually think that there's that's a valid point. I mean, the point in one of the arguments of the book is that there's no good guys and bad guys, right? Parents are well-meaning when they're doing this. They're not extreme. They're not some so-called tiger parents that are on you know one side of the continuum. These are well-meaning, balanced parents who want, to the, as all parents do, the best for their kids. And they decided that if I can add more academic learning for them, then the question isn't why to do it. The question is, why wouldn't you do that if you can afford it and you can schedule it? And these parents are doing so. In fact, they think that if you don't do this, you are you know, not serving your child well enough. But the problems that this creates are many. One is, you know, I think the most obvious is the educational gap between those who get this kind of attention and those who don't just widens, right? Those who can afford it and those who can't. And, but in addition to that, I spoke with teachers and educators and they really worry about the academic stress and anxiety these kids are under. I talked with a third grade teacher who said, I see kids who are almost nonverbal in the, wow. in, in the school 
because of just the stress that they're under. Now, not all of her stress is attributable to this one practice, but definitely adds, according to educators, to what the children are experiencing and feel compelled to perform at. And so, in fact, even some teachers think that students who are involved in this end up learning less in some ways because they have a certain kind of attitude around themselves. So the, the, there are pros and cons to this, but even if there are cons, parents believe this is something they really need to stay committed to. And one last thing I'll just say about why parents do this is parents are not just thinking about getting their kids, you know, to a higher grade level or an advanced course or even college, right? They're thinking about even other ways. One, one mother I spoke to, when I asked her, why did she have your her elementary kids in this after-school math class? She said, my grandmother survived the Holocaust. My parents put me through college through hard work. I want to instill those same values into my kids. In other words, she has them in this after-school math class, not because of the academic benefits, but because she wants to instill a certain set of cultural values that she connects to surviving the Holocaust. In other words, parents have a lot of deep meanings for why they do this. And I think that as more parents try it out, it's going to be more compelling to them as well. And, you know, you, you use the term tiger parent, and obviously that has racial shades. Uh, and I wonder, you know, you, you also, as I mentioned, um, are, are, are part of the South Asian American Digital Archive. I mean, mm-hmm. there's something here about stereotypes that's, that's cooking as well. There's something about stereotypes right. about, you know, Asian and Asian American parents in particular, as you mentioned, Jewish parents in particular, having this particular amount of, of social stress on their children about education, these sorts of things. I mean, how, how are you working to sort of dispel that or deconstruct it or Mm-hmm. I'm glad you asked that because part of the, the motivation was there's all this discourse around the tiger parent and it's mostly about the tiger parent and we never hear from the tiger parent. So let's take these families who okay. are actually would fit that stereotype and uncover like why are they motivated for this, whether they're immigrants or they're you know U.S. born whites or whatever, and what's drawing them towards this practice. So I looked at a lot of Asian immigrants, uh, in particular South Asians, but others and, and white Americans. and what I what I learn and what I wanted to share is that they may fit a certain kind of caricature or at least image in people's minds, but they actually have meaningful reasons for why they're doing this. And if you want to push back on tiger parenting as a practice, then we have to understand what's motivating it. Otherwise, we're just going to be talking past each other in these ways that aren't really helpful. And you know, a lot of teachers I spoke to worry that that the, these parents are you know too extreme and one dimensional. And they themselves, teachers themselves, don't fully appreciate what's motivating the parents in their own district. And this is why we're seeing a lot of communities talking past one another um, because they're relying on stereotypes as opposed to uncovering what's behind these images, what's behind these practices. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the one dimensionality thing has come up so much. I mean, you know, we just came off of AAPI Heritage Month. Um, we've seen a surge of crimes against um, Asian and Asian Americans here in the United States, as well mm-hmm. as elsewhere linked to the pandemic. And now, of course, the pandemic of um, anti-Black violence, especially that perpetrated by by state actors. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder just even more broadly, you know, as a, as a scholar, as a writer, um, you know what? What what can writers and scholars do right now to to show solidarity and and maybe push back against some of that one dimensionality that has sort of been a, a a stereotype, especially of Asians and Asian Americans in this country? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that writers, you know, what we need to be doing is um, really broadcasting and accentuating different kinds of stories that are normally heard, even if you people, uh, you know, even if listeners 
think that you know, they're well read because they read some of the major papers or outlets. They're all, anyone, just for anybody, including us, are not getting as many different kinds of voices in our ears or our eyes than as we can and should. So I think it's really incumbent upon writers to not just share your voice, but also try to accentuate voices and amplify voices that are otherwise not heard. And hopefully, right, that's not going to solve anything in itself. But the more we're able to relate to someone else's experience, the more that we see ourselves not as allies in a cause, but as part of that cause, then I think we're right. going to make progress, right? Because if we think of ourselves as allies to a cause, then we're not fully invested. We're only invested to the extent that we want to help someone else out. But we need to see ourselves as fully invested, as fully at stake in the causes of the day. And that's, I think, help, helped by understanding your own connection to those who are at most at stake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and let me ask you a, um, perhaps a more selfish question about you. Um, you know, obviously you have a book out amid, you know, a, a, a pandemic and B so much uncertainty right now. I mean, as an author, you know, how are you, how are you managing with, um, with being able to, to have a career as a writer and as an educator at mm. a moment that's so difficult? Yeah. Well, my one piece of advice would be don't publish during a pandemic. This is right. <laughs> but, um, think ahead. Yeah, think ahead. Yeah, I, I should have planned better. I should have known it was coming. Um, but, but seriously though, you know, you know, there's ever, if there's ever a good time to publish, you know, tell me no, but there, this is something that I think you have to realize there's a major issue going on that we all need to be attentive to. And if your piece is not getting the attention that you think it deserves, that's because there are other issues that are much more compelling of, of the day. But also what it's helped me realize is that, you know, this book was obviously not written with the pandemic or something like that in mind or with, you know, um, our other current crises in mind. But you realize that there are connections between this and what's these major national issues that right. helped me as a writer realize, you know what, I want to talk about this part of the book that I may not have talked about. or I want to I want to really amplify this element of it to make sure people understand that this can, you know, it connects to things that were going on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and just um, finally, I, I'd love to hear more about your work with the South Asian American Digital Archive. I actually, to be blunt, I hadn't heard about it until mm -hmm. you and I were able to connect. So so tell me a bit about this project and what it does. Gladly. Yeah. So it's one of the um, growing number of community-based archives uh, in the country that has become a model for others. And it started by our executive director uh, many years ago, and it's really kind of grown to become a national presence. And so in a nutshell, it documents and preserves uh, South Asian American history and culture in an online uh, fashion that makes it available to everyone free. So it may partner with a library or with a personal collection to uh, keep get, make their archives digitized um, and available and they're all tagged and everything else. And it's also doing a, and a lot of programming around the issues of the day or of the archive, partnering with artists and writers to and filmmakers and choreographers and et cetera to have them interpret pieces of the archive and then broadcast it out. It's created a walking tour of South Asian American history in Philadelphia, where the ED lives. Um, it's working with Pew and other grant foundations to find ways to collect more voices. So it'll, for instance, work in neighborhoods to bring out people whose stories we normally don't hear, even within one ethnic group. Uh, they're, they're normally silenced and bringing them and making them real part of the story uh, and the idea behind it, the ma major vision behind it is 
you know, people don't really know themselves if they don't know their history. But you cannot know your history unless you have access to it. And so what this, what the South Asian American Digital Archive is doing is creating that and sharing that with the general public. And it's become a real leader, like I said. I'm really proud to be affiliated, affiliated with it. I think it does great work. Yeah. And, and, and endeavors like this are just so important, especially now amid a, a lockdown and a pandemic and so many other things to, to right. have access. Uh, it's, it's important. Um, and, and finally, if I may, what are you reading right now? Uh, oh, um, you know, I've been rereading, I guess is a better way of putting it. I, mm-hmm. With all this going on, I picked back up um, Between the World and Me by Tanashi Coates mm-hmm. um, and have been sitting with that. And I, and in fact, also thinking about the concept of reparations as something that we could be talking about right now, but aren't um, and his work on that. So um, I've been, I've been re-enjoying and relearning um, from him these days. Yeah, I think a lot of people are, are doing a lot of rereading, and it's it's a, it's another yeah. great book in the canon. Well, um, educator and author uh, Pavan Dingra, his book is called Hypereducation, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Obviously, there are so many issues tied up in free speech and free expression right now. How protest is being criminalized, the battles over op-ed pages and newspapers, the disinformation that surges across social media. And with lockdowns and summer programs canceled, we realize families and students are looking for ways to stay engaged this summer. Enter the Penn America Summer Advocacy Institute. For two weeks, we'll lead an all-virtual crash course in defending free expression. Designed for talented high school and college-age students, the program will provide fundamentals in issues surrounding free speech with guest speakers like Jennifer Egan and Masha Gessen, and students will pick up practical skills like digital advocacy. You can learn more and apply on our website, pen.org. And that's our episode for Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. Join us tomorrow for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Sign up on our website for our daily Dare newsletter. That's where we track major stories about literature, free expression, and the news of the world. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you tomorrow. <laughs>